This morning, uh, we're going to be reading from the 19th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. We'll read there to, uh, for beginning in verse 29 in just a moment. But we're continuing a series that we started last week entitled Two Masters. Uh, and the subtitle is God and Mammon in America. And, and I use that word, uh, Mammon, and, and I feel like I, I need to make sure we understand what we're talking about because it's not a common word, but, but it's a word that describes a, a spirit of materialism or a spirit of, of uh, greed or, or a, a trying to hang on to wealth. And, and we're basing this uh, series really on uh, what Jesus said uh, when he said that a man can't serve two masters uh, he can't serve God and mammon, or some translations say money. And so what we're doing is we're taking a few weeks to talk about uh, learning how to live generously in the Spirit of God. This is a sort of a stewardship type of series that we're doing. And today our message is, is entitled, The Lord Has Need of It. So Luke chapter 19, I'm going to begin reading at verse 29. When he drew near to Bethphage and Beth, Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found, uh, excuse me, so those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. He, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the, his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had, been, they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your, your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for this moment to be able to draw near to you and, and, and draw near into your word. And I pray, God, that, that what you say to us, Lord God, what we say in this place would be profitable for our souls. God, I pray that you would come and speak to us, challenge us. Come, Holy Spirit. Father, I, I ask that you would speak through me. I praise you, God, that when we are weak, you are strong. And, and Lord, I confess my weakness before you. I thank you, God, that you'll fulfill your purpose in every event and circumstance of our lives. And nothing is done in us that is not under the direct watchfulness of your eye. Thank you, God. And, and Lord, I, I, you see this moment, this service, every person here. And I'm asking you now, O oh Lord, to, to just... Fill this moment, and at this very moment, reach forth your hand and be glorified. We believe you for it, and we thank you for it. In the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. I realized in reading this passage of Scripture that there's a character in this story that is, uh, that is, that is not really mentioned. I've never heard a sermon about him. I've never heard anyone teach about him, yet the story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem riding on the colt of a donkey could never have been fulfilled. This story is the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. It was a moment of tremendous impact in Jesus' earthly ministry. It's a moment in the life of Jesus to which 
The church refers annually, at the very least, on Palm Sunday. Yet the whole thing would have been impossible without one man. That man is the man who owned the donkey. Now you may say to yourself, how big of a deal was it that he gave this donkey uh, on this day? Let's try to bring it into modern context. And a lot of what we're going to be doing today, we're going to bring it into a modern context to try to put it into a context whereby we'll be able to understand and, and, under, uh, and grasp the, the enormity of what's going on. So uh, if we bring it into this, how can we see this situation in a way that will have meaning to us? So I tried to understand what this donkey represented. And I see the donkey represents a, a means of conveyance. It's a, it's a means of transportation. It's, it's also a, a valuable possession. And the third thing is that it's a working vehicle. So, because the donkey was used in labor and work and, and wage earning. And as I pondered this, these things in my mind, I saw before my eyes a beautiful, shiny, fully equipped, four by four, bright red pickup truck. Now, I'm not very highly conversant with pickup trucks, but whatever kind of pickup truck that you think is the very best that money can buy, the greatest, uh, the most powerful, you know, listen, this is not some sissy pickup truck. This is a macho pickup truck with a big whip antenna with a tennis ball on the end of it and a gun rack up in the back window and a sound system that'll blow you away, including a subwoofer behind the seat that'll make your kidneys bleed. This is what we're talking about. Everything you can put in a pickup truck is in it. It's beautiful and it's brand new. The sticker is still on the window. You say, wait a minute, Pastor, how do you know it was brand new? Because the Bible tells us that it was a colt on which no one had ever sat. The sticker was still on the window. Right out of the showroom floor. Beautiful. Now the question for us is this. How can a man allow someone to simply drive off with a beautiful, fully equipped, uh, perfect, bright red pickup truck. I mean, how does the man just stand by and fold his arms while folks just drive off with his pickup truck, walk off with his donkey? And I, and I thought about that and I realized that the story can't possibly begin here. The story can't possibly start here. You don't enter into allowing God to call you to those levels of obedience with respect to the manner of serving God financially and giving sacrificially. You can't enter, possibly enter in with God at this level. This is a level of giving and surrender toward which you move. The story doesn't start here. There's got to be a prelude. There's got to be something that goes before this to reach this place. And I began to research to try to understand this story, to try to see it better, to see its history, to understand the character of this story. And I, I began to look at this and I, I realized that the last time that the Bible mentions that Jesus was in the area of Bethany and Bethphage, he had worked a miracle. Some years before this. Now, now brethren, I, I, I don't know that this is the one and the same man. This is at least some level conjecture. Uh, however, it is less than licensed because it is the same village and things very like it happened at the time and still do. So therefore, let me take you back to the time before Jesus came into this area on the, on the day of the triumphal entry. There's a man, a young man, who is cut off from his family, 
lost in darkness. He's demonized and and hurting, wounded, demon-possessed, and it has rendered him speechless. Now, there's nothing physically wrong with him. There's nothing physically keeping him from speaking, but there's no way of communication. He's filled with the demons of hell. People are afraid of him. He's probably even afraid of himself. People would take pity on him and occasionally throw him. You know, he'd be cowering in a corner next to the gate and people would take pity and throw him a, 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 a moldy crust of bread and he'd gobble it down like a beast. His family is completely cut off from him and he's cut off from them. Never a kind touch. There's never a gentle word. Never an embrace. Never a moment of tenderness. And suddenly one morning as he crouches in a doorway, cowering in, in fear and cowering in loneliness, living in the demonized nightmare of his life, he hears some noise off in the distance. He can sense that something is going on. Something big is happening. There, there's a parade. People are moving about all around him. And, and he scoots back in the darkness to retreat from whatever is going on. And people are approaching and he doesn't know what to do. And all of a sudden as he's crouched there in the, in the darkness of that doorway, a pair of sandals stops right in front of him. He won't look up from the ground. He just sees those two sandaled feet in front of him. And then somehow or another, with power that penetrates the veil of demonized darkness that separates him from the rest of humanity and from God, a voice like 10,000 waterfalls shatters the darkness and into his consciousness, to his spiritual man, there comes a voice out of him. Let him loose and let him go. Suddenly, in an instant, he's free. Can you imagine this? I wonder if we can. Instantly, totally, absolutely, miraculously free. He can see. He can hear. He can speak. He can think. His mind is clear. He is aware of of his surroundings. He is sharp. He is focused. Suddenly the, the day of reality dawns in the nightmare world without substance in which he had lived. He is free. Can we even begin to understand this? Free. Oh, you know, we have such a sissified idea of salvation in the United States. We say, oh, if you don't feel good about your life, come forward. Pray the sinner's prayer with me. Thank God, shake hands with a preacher, now you're all right. But you see, the biblical concept of salvation is so deep and so profound. Out of darkness and into his glorious light. Up from the dead and into life, a total renewal, a, a restoration, a, really a resurrection in your own life. It, 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 the word salvation can even be translated deliverance. It can be translated healed. It can be translated set free. And of course, it can be translated saved. It means a total release of every force, every binding element that wants to capture me and drag me towards destruction. This boy experiences it. The whole thing, whoosh, just like that, he's free. One word and suddenly he's free. And suddenly he sees himself. Suddenly he sees reality. I mean, can we even begin to understand this? Can you understand what it's like to live in insanity and in madness and demonized darkness for years and years and years and then in an instant to be free? Just like that, free. Oh, I tell you, I, I remember the moment I remember the moment kneeling at the altar of a youth camp in southern Missouri. 
When I fell on my knees and cried out to God to rescue my worthless light and life in Jesus of Nazareth spoke a word and I was free of every darkness and every lying spirit and all the depression and all the guilt. Free in a moment, I passed from death unto life. I think I understand at least just a small fraction of how this boy must have felt. He looked up into Jesus' eyes and we don't know what he said. His words aren't recorded, but I think I have a pretty good idea of what he said because this is what happens when people meet Jesus. I think he looked up and said, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. You know, we sometimes make this idea of lordship, the lordship of Jesus Christ, something toward which we work year after year after year, but I don't believe that at all. I I think lordship is entry level kindergarten Christianity. I I think lordship is the only way you walk with God. It's the only way you even start to walk with God. I, I don't think it's possible to look into the face of Almighty God and say, wash away my sins. Please forgive me. I don't want to go to hell when I die, but don't ask me for anything. No, as we say down south, that dog don't hunt. I believe that God expects full surrender, total devotion, absolute capitulation. He requires nothing less than than our declaration, I am yours, O Lord. And I think that's what this man said. I think he said, I surrender myself to you, Lord Jesus. I know that you are the Messiah because only the Messiah could have done this for me. Other people have prayed for me. Other people tried to help me. But you're the only one who can make a difference. No one could reach me. I know who you are and I completely surrender my life to you. You know, I know a man who was preaching at a church in Texas a number of years ago. Before the service, they, had a, they always had a group of uh, people that gather and pray before every service. And, and they prayed. They had a great time of prayer. The power of God was in that prayer meeting before the service. And they began to pray that night. They began to pray and say, Lord, would you just draw to, to the church those that are in deepest need? Listen, you dare not pray that prayer unless you mean it. And that night, right in the middle of the service, they were, they were singing their worship songs in preparation for the evening service, you know, singing nice, soft, soothing songs. And all of a sudden, right in the middle of service, the, the, the double doors straight down the middle aisle of the church burst open. And it was a small church with wooden floors and the pews were right next to there. And the doors just, the doors just flew open and just bang, hit the pews on either side of the aisle. And, and, and in walked the most terrifying apparition of a man you've ever seen in your life. A great big hombre, about six foot four. He had a Harley Davidson shirt on and a studded leather jacket. He had big old hobnail boots. He had a, a leather bracelet around around his right wrist with spikes on it sticking out from that. He was wild-eyed, and he pushed through those doors, boom, and just looked around. One of the ushers, bless his heart, as we say in the South, one of the ushers ran up to him and said, can we help you? And he said, what is this place? He said, it's a church. He, and, the, and the man said, what? They said, it's a church. Why did you come? Well, he just pushed the usher aside like he was a, you know, made of straw and he just clumped down the aisle of that church right toward the preacher. And as I said, it was a wooden floor. So every step in those great big old boots sounded like Goliath marching down through the church building. I'm telling you right now, the worship set was over. It was done. 
people had been singing softly, but that was all over with now. And he, he walked down the aisle and sat down right on the front row. And the preacher preached, and that man just stared into his face the whole time. And at the end of the message, the preacher said, If you want to receive Christ as Savior and Lord, stand up and rock, walk right up here. You know, I don't know about you, but I love doing church with people who don't know how to do church. I've got stories. Actually, I've got stories I can't even tell you about doing church with people who don't know how to do church. Uh, it's just wonderful. But, but when the preacher said, come up here, he thought he meant up here, as in on the platform behind the pulpit. And so he marches right down, right down on the platform. Here he is, this great big six foot four uh, hulk of a man weighing about 240 pounds. He comes up behind the pulpit, but he comes up just weeping and crying. He reached over and gave that preacher a great big old bear hug and buried his head on that preacher's shoulder and began weeping and crying. He, he, he said to the preacher, he said, Mr., you see this red on my shirt? He said, I just walked out of my house. I, I was angry with my wife. We had a fight and I punched her in the nose and this is her blood that splattered on my shirt. He said, I jumped on my bike and I was riding down the highway and a voice said to me, turn right at the next light. He said, I nearly wrecked my motorcycle trying to see who, who had climbed on back behind me and I did, without me knowing it. And he said, mister, I'm telling you, there was nobody there. He said, I turned right at the light and went down about three blocks and the voice said, turn left. He said, I turned left and the voice said, now turn into this parking lot and go into that building. He said, this is the first church I've ever been in in my life. He said, I had no idea what I was going to find here. And then he said, what I found is freedom. Now that's where this, amen. Now that's where this boy was coming from. This is where this starts. You don't start giving away pickup trucks. You don't start by giving away homes and houses and lands. You don't start there. This is where you start. You start by saying, yes, Lord. You start by, by saying, oh, God, I'm dead and I want to be alive. I'm blind and I want to see. You start by saying, Jesus, save me. And Jesus, be the Lord of my life. You start, you start in absolute surrender. You fall before his feet just like this demonized boy in this story. You know, if, if, if the thing is, if you stare Jesus in the eye and say, well, you know what, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. I don't, I don't beat my wife like the guy in the Harley shirt. I'm not a bad person. I'm a pretty good guy. And I'd probably go to heaven without you, but I, but I want, you to, want to make sure, will you save me? I'm telling you right now, my dear friend, that if, you're, if that's what you think, if you think that you're good enough and you, you might be able to make it without Jesus, you're in worse shape than the guy in the Harley Davidson shirt who beat his wife. This is the hardest thing for a nice, clean-cut, perfumed American congregation to get until you fall before his feet and say, Lord Jesus, save me. Without you, I am utterly doomed. You cannot even begin the walk. Now let's get back to our story. This man said to Jesus, you're the Lord. Anything you ask of me, I'll do it. There's nothing you could ever say to me that I wouldn't obey. And Jesus said, don't say that if you don't mean it. Because it's better not to make a vow than to make a vow and not keep it. He said, Lord, anything. From this moment on, you're the Lord of my life. And Jesus said to him, all right then, now listen to this. Jesus said, all right, someday... You're going to hear these words. The Lord has need of it. And you'll know that it is I who is speaking. And Jesus left. 
Well, imagine in your mind that God took that boy, that young boy up out of the gutter. He saved him, as they used to say, from the guttermost to the uttermost. And he washed him in the blood and filled him with the Holy Spirit. He answered his prayers. He got him a job on a little construction crew, hammering nails and carrying lumber. He gave him a beautiful little wife who worked as a secretary in downtown Jerusalem. And, you know, they worked together and saved their pennies and managed to scrape together a little nest egg. They were finally able to buy an old, beat-up 1954 Chevy pickup truck. And with that truck, he launched the Greater Jerusalem Construction Company, Incorporated. He was the sole employee and proprietor. His wife was the secretary and the clerk and the typist and the receptionist and the saleswoman. And God, as it usually is, right, ladies? And God blessed it. Isn't it amazing when God just puts his foot down in a place and said, I'm here, I'm going to show my hand in this place. God blessed it and it began to prosper. And soon he had two crews working for him. And after a while he had three crews working for him. Then he was able to hire a manager. And then he was able to hire a general manager. And then he even went public with his stock. Oh, God was just blessing him. Finally, one day he sat down with his accountant and he said, you know what I've always dreamed of? He said, I've always dreamed of having a great, big, beautiful, red, shiny, fully equipped 4x4 pickup truck with a gun rack in the window. And his accountant looked at him and said, well, sir, you can do it and you can pay cash. So he said, get me a suitcase full of money. I'm going to go do it. And he walked down to the showroom and described to the salesman what he wanted. He said, I want everything on it. He said, sir, do you, do you want a racing stripe on it? Yes, I, I want everything. Give me a racing stripe. Give me anything you got. Well, he, he said, he said, he said what, do you, uh, you want a fax machine? Yeah, if you can put a fax machine, give me a fax machine in the truck. That's something nobody else has. If you got it, I want it, okay? Well, he says, well, what about a telephone? He says, by all means, if, if I've got to have a telephone. I mean, is there anything else you can put in it? He said, well, maybe a CB radio. Well, a man can't live without a CB radio. That'd be half of a man in a pickup truck without a CB radio. Everything. I want anything you got. You got a radar detector? Give me a radar detector. Those Jerusalem police are sneaky. You got to give me a radar detector. And the salesman just couldn't believe it. He said, praise God. Blessed are you who are highly favored. He said, sir, you're not going to believe this. But we have one in stock. With everything you've asked for, we never thought we'd sell it. But here it is. Now, he says, how do you want to arrange financing on this truck? He said, arrange financing. And he popped open that suitcase, that briefcase, and he said, son, I'm going to pay cash. And the salesman said, oh, God is so good. (laughs) He plunked that cash down, got in his pickup truck, cranked it up, and drove home slowly. Right down his street, waving out the window at all his neighbors. He passed a neighbor mowing his yard. Hey, said, do you remember me? You remember when I was a drunken bum? Remember when I was a demon-possessed guy that nobody wanted to be around? Look what God's done. Look what God's done. Oh, he was just so pleased. He pulled up in his driveway and his wife rushes out onto the steps and they they go over the pickup truck looking at everything and his neighbors come around and they're talking about it it's so wonderful they're so excited for him and and meanwhile while this is going on meanwhile on the other side of town jesus and his entourage have just entered the city limits of bethany jesus says now 
we're going we're gonna to go down to Jerusalem. And he tells his disciples, and we're, we're going to make a grand entry. And the disciples said, oh, that's great, Jesus. You need a limousine. He said, no, 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 no. I'm going to go standing up in the back of a pickup truck. And they said, Lord, please don't do this. Let's get a limo. Let's get a big white stallion. That's what you need. You need a limo. That's what you need. Jesus said, no, no, no. I'm going to stand up in the back of a pickup truck. I'm the savior of the common people. I'll just ride in a pickup truck. They said, Lord, where in the world are we going to get a pickup truck? He said, I'm glad you asked. He said, go into Bethany, go down three lights and turn right, go two more blocks and then go left, and there'll be a house on the right-hand side there, and you're going to see it there. They're parked right next to that house. There's going to be a great big brand new red pickup truck. And he looked at Peter. He said, Peter, you and John go hotwire that truck and bring it back to me. And if he says it, if anyone says anything, tell them the Lord has need of it. Tell them exactly that, Peter, or you're going to get your head blown off. The Lord has need of it. Now, I don't know if any of you sense this story as being any kind of challenge to Peter and John's faith, but I do. I believe it was two very uncertain and frightened preachers that left Jesus aside that day. They started walking to town, and they're going to walk off with somebody's prized possession. And the only explanation they're going to give is, The Lord has need of it. (laughs) Good luck with that one. And they walked down and found the street just as Jesus said, and there was the pickup truck. And there were a lot of people standing around on the front porch. The sticker is still in the window. Remember, no one has ever rode on this this colt. Peter says, John, you hotwire the truck, and I'll crouch down in the floorboard. So the preachers walk down the driveway, rubbing their hands on the paint of this brand new truck, just slick as can be. The men on the front porch said, look, Bob, I wonder what those two preachers are doing out there looking at your truck. He said, oh, let them look. I mean, poor, he said, poor pitiful preachers like, like that. They've never had anything nice in their lives. Just let them look. And they said, I, I, I wonder... I wonder why they're opening the hood. He said, oh, well, they've probably never seen two four-barrel carburetors underneath the same hood. They just never seen anything like it. Just let them look. And all of a sudden, the engine roars to life. And his friends say, you know, Bob, I believe they're stealing your truck. And at that moment, the, 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 they slam down the hood, jump in the front street uh, seat and throw it into reverse. And the man on the front porch came running down. He was just panicking. He said, where do you think you're going with my pickup truck? And Peter rolled the window. No, he, he hit the button. And he looked at him and said, uh, the Lord has need of it. I mean, does this make sense to anybody? If anybody asks, where are you going with my donkey? Tell them the Lord has need of it. Exactly that. It must have had meaning. It must have had background. There must have been some point to these words. But why those words? Why not Jesus wants it? The the Lord has need of it. And and he says this. and And the moment of his deliverance came back like a bolt of lightning. After all those years, suddenly he saw himself kneeling at the feet of Jesus in demonized terror with day dawning like the sun of righteousness rising on his immediate horizon. He saw himself free. 
He saw the liberty of God. He saw the compassion-filled, tender eyes of Jesus. He saw those precious hands reaching out to Him lovingly. He saw it all. And He heard Jesus saying to Him, Someday you'll hear Me say, The Lord has need of it. And it was just like that. And He said, Take the truck and go. Glory to God. See there, I say all this story. There is a level of obedience that springs from a gratitude-filled heart that knows from whom it sprang and unto whom it belongs and unto whom it shall return. There is a level of giving that is directly linked, it's a, it's a direct result of an obedience born of joy and gratitude. Let's bring this down to the issue of money for a minute. Listen, my friends, I believe in tithing. I, I mean 10% of your annual income before the government gets their portion. I mean it, before taxes, 10% to God. I believe in tithing. I practice tithing. I believe it is such a huge supernatural principle that I believe God will honor it even if your heart is not in it. I believe this. I believe that you can begin to tithe out of simple determination to obey and God will honor that. But that is not the richest way. That's not the way that brings joy. That's not the way that brings, uh, 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 that brings uh, 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 fulfillment to your life. The way that tithing brings joy is to say, God... Everything I have is yours. Why, I was a demonized wretch cowering in a doorway until you came. I was lost and undone. I was living in confusion and darkness and in terror. I was a walking nightmare until you came. I couldn't set my own mind free. I couldn't sanctify myself. I couldn't forgive my own sins. Jesus, everything I have is yours. Why, every time Jesus asks anything of me, anytime he ever challenges me, anytime he ever calls me, I always remember myself as a depressed teenager who was turning to alcohol to numb the pain, wondering if life was ever even worth living. I remember myself as a chronic liar that didn't even know the difference between lies and the truth anymore. I remember myself as a person without a purpose in life and no reason to to go on. And when I remember who I was and how he saved me out of what I was, I say to myself, what could Jesus possibly ask that would be too much? I believe that unless you come to that point where you see your relationship with God and that kind of humble gratitude that then every time that Jesus challenges you, every time he calls on you, every time he pushes you to a deeper, a higher, or or, or more profound level of discipleship or stewardship or obedience, then until you reach that place, it will always chafe your soul and you'll always resent it. I love the words to the old song. My sins... Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sins, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Listen, until you can look up at the cross and see your personal sin nailed there, you will never find the liberty of joy in obeying God and giving to him. This man 
didn't try to strike a deal with Jesus. He didn't say to the disciples, no, 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 no. You don't want the pickup truck. My goodness, I've got a nicer car in the backyard. Let me get you that for. He didn't try to finagle. He didn't try to reason it out. He didn't say, oh, Jesus wouldn't look good at standing up in the back of a pickup truck. He said, take it and go. This is what God is trying to say to us. Listen to this. And this is why we have stewardship series. This is why we deal with this issue. And I'll never apologize for preaching about uh, wealth and money and possessions because it's it's a life or death situation in our lives. Here's the thing. It is easy for our possessions to possess us. Do you see how easy it is for possessions to possess us, for, for mammon to clutch us, for us to be controlled and dominated by the things that we own? And if you don't think that you're controlled or dominated by something you own, then, then think of the most, the, your favorite thing in the world, the most precious possession that you have. How would you feel if Jesus said, I want you to walk over to that person across the aisle and give it to him right now? That'll, that tells you a little bit more of the power that it has in our lives. What if he said to you, I want you to walk across the aisle, give your house key to somebody. I'm not saying he's saying to do that. But it has power. See, Jesus has come to pry, not our hands off of our possessions, but their hands off of us. I've had many, many people say to me, don't you think tithing is an Old Testament law? Brethren, that's, that's not the point at all. The point is not whether it's law or Old Testament. In fact, um, another time in another series, we'll talk about stewardship and we'll talk about the difference between Old Testament law and grace. And I'll show you from Scripture how grace always requires more than the law did. Now, I'll give you a little preview of that. For example, you see it in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you have heard it said, love your neighbor but hate your enemy. Jesus said, but I say, love your enemy. Which one's calling for more? The law or grace? Grace is calling for more. We'll do that in another message. I don't want to go that way today. But the point I'm trying to make here is, when it comes to possessions possessing us, There is no more beautiful and biblical way to demonstrate my absolute conviction that God will provide for me than tithing. The one thing the world cannot understand is giving. The world can understand almost every other thing the church does except giving. Giving flies in the the face of everything the world believes. Hold on to what you've got because you're you're not going to get any more. Or, Or you hear people say there's no such thing as a free lunch. Or they say, you know, never give away anything for free. That's the prevailing wisdom of the world. But the Christian says... If He says, everything I have came from God. If I gave 10% of it to him willingly, what is that? All, all that I am is his. The first 10% is his. The last 10% is his. All he's asking is the 10%. I don't know if you've ever heard of R.G. Letourneau. Anybody hear of R.G. Letourneau? One person, I'm amazed. He's, uh, he was a... Uh, an inventor and manufacturer of earth-moving machines, known throughout the construction world as the dean of earth-moving. Letourneau is considered to this day to have been the world's greatest inventor of earth-moving and materials handling handling equipment. But he made a fortune out of what he did. 
And he gave millions upon millions to Christian causes. And people would come to him and they'd ask him, they'd say, how in the world can you give millions of dollars away? He said, they're asking me the wrong question. The question is not, how can I give away all that I gave away? The question he said I struggled with is how much of God's money do I dare keep for myself? Only a grateful, humble heart can ask the question that way. And you know, what I generally find myself asking is how much do I dare let Jesus have of my thinking, my relationships, my eyes, my attitudes, my finances, my resources, my time, my talents, my energies. How much do I dare let Jesus have before I wind up being unhappy? But what I've generally found is this. Now, now isn't, tell me this isn't true. When I ask the question that way, I end up becoming more and more unhappy and more and more miserly in the way that I live. But when I enter into the obedience of just giving what's asked and doing what's told because I love him, I find joy. I'm so convinced that this is of this that I want to challenge you with this straight out. I don't know any other way to do this except just to say to you, I challenge you. If you have income to your name, now I'm not talking about your assets, I'm, I'm talking about income to your name. Even if you're a, if you're a child that relieves, receives an, an allowance, if there's income to your name, I challenge you to begin to tithe if you're not already doing so. Tithe for one year. Put it before the Lord. If you make $1,000 a week, $100 goes to God. Just like that, no questions asked no matter what. If you make a million dollars a week, then 100000 a week to God. Just like that, no questions asked no matter what. If you make $100 a week, then it's $10 a week that goes to God. In this way, you see, what happens is everybody in the church gives exactly the same. We're always afraid that those who give the most receive the most power in the church. But that will not happen if you begin to think in terms of tithe. Uh, uh, you know, Jesus, he never thinks in terms of the amount. He makes that perfectly clear. The widow who came and brought just the small uh, offering, he's, he, when she dropped it in the offering, he said to his disciples, she's given more than everybody because she gave a much, much larger percentage. She gave all that she had. If a person makes $10 million a week and gives a million dollars a week, he gives no more than the person who makes $100 a week and gives $10. They both give the same. They both give the same. Therefore, they're in exactly the same relationship with God in terms of stewardship. Giving and living in obedience to God springs from a heart that is overflowing with praise and gratitude at what he has already done in my life and has faith that he can take care of me without reservation. I heard about a young wealthy businessman came to the pastor of, a, a, the, of a Calvary Assembly of God Church in Orlando, Florida some, several years ago. And he said that God had spoken to him that he was supposed to give away a million dollars. And he wanted the pastor to pray with him about it. He wanted him to pray that in the next year he would receive enough new income in his life where he'd be able to give away a million dollars. And the pastor said, my friend, I will pray for you on that. But I want to know this before we pray. If it comes in... Are you going to raise your standard of living? Are you going to buy a new car? Are you going to open a new mortgage until you can't afford to give it away, uh, to give away the million? And, and the man looked at him and said, Before God, I covenant with you, I will not change my lifestyle. If God raises my income by $1 million, I will give it to God. It's a dream that I have. It's something that, that God has spoken to me. In one year, I want to give a million dollars. And the pastor said, Okay, on that, we'll pray. 
And they knelt down in his living room and prayed and claimed that together. And he called the pastor that year on December 35th, 31st, that year. And he said, I just wanted you to know that today I met with my accountant. And today, this afternoon, I'm going to be able to write a check for a million dollars. Now, he gave the entire amount to the First Baptist Church in his hometown. The pastor never could understand that. But, uh, but, uh, but, but how wonderful is it that there is this young man who had the vision and the earnestness and the faith that God could trust him with that vision and could trust him with that amount of money and he didn't lose his soul along the way. It's a miracle to me. See, I find the smallest thing passes through my hands and if you're like me, I have the tendency to clutch it. Let me close with this. If we could have a musician come. When we think about big things, huge things, the pickup truck, a million dollars, big things, the problem with that is it warps our view of the issue. Bring it down to the smallest thing that, that, that he could ask of me, a, a tender word, uh, that compliment, that, that, that kiss, that word of encouragement, that small gift. There's a missionary who told of a time when he was in Ghana, Africa in 1980. It was a very, very difficult time in Ghana in 1980. The country was closed down. The people were virtually starving to death. There was nothing in the country. There was no gasoline. The lines to get gas were sometimes, listen to this. You think it was bad in the 70s here? The lines to get gas were sometimes three or four or even five days long. There there were shootouts at gasoline pumps. Soldiers had to stand guard at gas stations with machine guns to keep people from charging and taking the gasoline. In that country during that time, a single fried egg and a piece of toast in a restaurant would cost you $12.50, American dollars, in 1980. In the midst of all of that, this missionary went out to this small village. And oh, the, the joy of the people, the love, the unfettered praise, the graciousness of spirit. And they were there for five and a half hours. Five and a half hours they were there that day. When it was over, when he had finished preaching, the, the chief of the village came to him and said that they had been so blessed that they wanted to make a presentation to him. And they came forward and they, they handed him a live chicken. He didn't know, he didn't know, he had never been on a farm. He didn't know what to do with a live chicken. In fact, it was the only live chicken he had ever held in his life. And they were holding the chicken by its wings and they handed it to him. And then on top of that, they gave him a filthy loaf of bread. It was just an unwrapped loaf of bread that was just filthy. It looked like it had a week's worth of dust on it. And there he stood with his live chicken and this filthy loaf of bread in his hands. And he thought to himself, my goodness gracious, this dirty loaf of bread, this chicken with its feet up in the air. What am I going to do with these? And he looked out at these people and their eyes were just beaming. Their faces were glowing. The joy they had in giving was overflowing. And he realized in that moment that they were thrilled beyond words to be able to offer that gift to him. And the Lord spoke to him and said, do you understand? The Lord said, these people have given you everything they have. Because when people are starving and they give you food, they've given you all they have. 
what could God ask of me that I wouldn't give? A tithe? Really? What, what is a tithe? My car, my house, an attitude? Jesus is Lord, and all that I have is His. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that this man and